Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, friends of the Free Market Foundation. Welcome back to this new episode of the Free Marketeers podcast. I hope you're all doing well. Um, this is a new episode we're sending out. The first one in a few weeks. It's been crazy with South Africa going to a few lighter levels of lockdown, as it were. Um, some hope being given to the people of the country that maybe things will return to some sense of normalcy but even then i don't want us to fall victim to that i don't want us to fall prey to that we don't want to return to normal as it was before lockdown the country wasn't doing very well we need to rethink a lot of things that we did before the lockdown and how south africa heads out of that there's been a lot of talk around structural reform from business leadership south africa from business for south africa from the presidency from politicians all sorts of players so Part of what we do is we want to influence that conversation. What should South Africa and South Africans be doing? Should we wait for the next election? Should we wait for the next president, for the next politician before we get growth going? What can South Africans do? What can we take into our own hands in terms of moving the country forward in a productive way, in a meaningful way for all South Africans? Um, the population keeps on growing. So how do we get the economy going again? On that note, uh, I am very pleased to welcome back to the podcast, Pavlo Fatidis. Uh, I did an episode with him a few months ago. Pavlo, thanks very much for being here with us again. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Krista. So Pavlo, we talked a little bit about this before we started recording. Um, you've been especially productive. I think a lot of people, of course, know you in any case before the lockdown, but there's news now that uh, a new book of yours is coming out. And I thought we would spend the majority of time talking about your book and of course, teasing out a few ideas. So I thought uh, we would start off just by you maybe giving a little bit of background on that, um, obviously using your time very productively in lockdown. Maybe your uh, editors and publishers have been on you. Maybe we shouldn't give you all the credit. <laughs> um, <laughs> just for the, for the viewers and listeners, uh, the title of Pablo's new book, which I will link to, in the description, but just so that you know, it's Reset, Rebuild, Reignite. Build your business to thrive in a crisis. Now, Pavla, over to you. And that's the main word, thrive in a crisis, because crises are inevitable. Uh, Krista, the way this came about is um, I'm very fortunate in that we've got clients in a number of different locations around the world. Mm -hmm. And two of our clients are based in Hong Kong. And over the December period, they started to communicate with me and say, listen, things are tough here. Uh, the COVID issue, the coronavirus issue is real. It's happening. We are moving into lockdown. The city is shutting down. Our revenues are shutting down. Um, what do we do? What do we do? And we started to have some really useful conversations around what they could do, what they ought to do, how we were going to ride through this. And it became increasingly evident that the shutdown was going to come through from east to west. It was going to wash across the world. And I started to think really long and hard about what this meant for our clients in South Africa, in the US, in Europe, and in the UK. Um, and the reason I was especially concerned about our South African clients is because really they don't have the same type of support that was inevitably going to be given into the US, the US, uh, the US, the UK, and the EU, where government stepped in very definitively and as things shut down, provided a whole lot of relief schemes from furloughing staff, which is a new word I learned, incidentally, um, in the middle of a webinar speaking to quite a large audience of SMEs. 
effectively what government did in the UK is they took your staff and said, send them home. We will pay 85% of their salary up to 2,500 pounds a month, but they can't work in the business. And it is a temporary relief until we pass through the lockdown so that when the economy opens up again, you can receive them and you don't lose your ability to start, operate, build and grow. Um, so quite a few programs like that were put in place. In South Africa, hardly anything was done for our SMEs. The second thing that bothered me about that extensively, other than the obvious, is SMEs in South Africa have borne the brunt of a shoddily run economy for the last three, four, five years. Uh, that compounded with Eskom's failure to deliver reliable electricity, put most of the people that I specifically care about, which is a private business owner, in the mid-tier SME space, in a very compromised position. They came into the lockdown with very, very thin balance sheets and very, very few reserves. So long story short, we sprung into action. A week and a half, two weeks before we were locked down, I ran a webinar um, sharing the thoughts and views and ideas that I had drawn from our clients in Hong Kong and some of our clients in uh, the UK where the shutdowns uh, had occurred a week, two weeks before we had shut down over here. And I also drew extensively off my own history in company turnarounds. We issued a webinar called Build a Battle Plan to Beat the Corona Lockdown. And it was very, very well received. Completely practical, a three-stage strategy to cope with the crisis. My publisher was on it, unbeknownst to me. She phoned me straight afterwards and said, we need to get that down in a book. And I said, you've got to be kidding me because time was of the essence, but time was scarce. And if you meet her, Krista, she is one of the most convincing people I've ever come across. She conned me into buckling down and reducing all of it to writing, which is what Reset, Rebuild, Reignite is all about. Is there, now heading out of the lockdown, is there anything that jumps out to you maybe in researching, you know, for that webinar, for example, that you helped businesses with and that became the book, was there anything big that jumped out to you that the government can do now? I mean, we can, of course, talk about during lockdown and before lockdown, the missteps, ESCOM, all this stuff. But let's focus on 2021, 2022, 2025, 2030. We want to be in South Africa. I think a lot of us want to stay here. A lot of us want to build. We want to create value. We want to help. How do we point government in the right direction in, in that regard? I, I mean, one of the ideas I've had is around exemptions for SMEs for certain taxes or certain compliance or stuff like that. How do you, what do you think government will bite at? What, what, will, what will be good for them so that they engage with the sector? And what, what do you think will really help SMEs heading out of this, this lockdown now? Look, you know, it's, in, in many ways, it's quite simple for government. And the simplicity behind it is you have no choice. Okay. We're going to be moving towards 35, 40% unemployment in this country. And what we do know is that big businesses are not absorbing the unemployed into the economy. Right. The only option 
to absorb people into the economy is going to be by creating a thriving and specifically vibrant, and that's the key term, a vibrant SME economy. Mm. So let's talk about how you do that, because there are three or four low-hanging fruit, which we can pluck almost instantly and immediately. And the starting point would be, let's develop a single, a single economic growth strategy for South Africa, based on what South Africa has in its basket of goods. We have the most broadly industrialized business economy on the continent, and yet we've never leveraged it, we've never nurtured it, we've never gone and further supported it. We should be providing the roads, the airports, the power stations, the hospitals, the buildings, you name it, for the rest of Africa. But we went and we antagonized our brothers and sisters north of our border in the last 10 years or so, either through arrogance or either through, I don't know what drove it, mm. but we've, we've behaved xenophobically. If we developed a single economic strategy that was cognizant of what South Africa's role could be in the global economic value chain, cognizant of South Africa's role in Africa, and stuck to that for the next 15 to 20 years alone, we would be able to start to move this economy because a vision like that would then need to be supported with policies that are sensible, that are simple, and that are sustainable. They need to stay in play because the SME economy, Christo, requires investment. Unlike securing an opportunity in corporate, if I become a corporate CEO, I secure an opportunity to be the CEO for a three or five year term. And in that three to five year period, because that corporate entity is most likely listed, it has an enormous balance sheet, it's well funded. I'm able to do what I need to do. And over that period of time, I can earn my performance bonuses. I can earn my share incentives. I earn already a good salary. The nature of the SME environment is that you or I need to take a, a decision to invest. And if we even remotely smart about what we're doing, we know that that investment needs a seven to 10 to 12 year maturity before we can earn our reward. Now, how do you invest in an environment that's constantly in change, where the economic strategy is being debated and negotiated on Twitter between four different areas of the ANC government, we have no stability, we have no certainty, we have no confidence about what it means. I'm not going to invest. Mm. And if I'm not going to invest, how do we establish the SME economy? So the starting point, find one single economic strategy, but be sure it fits into the global value chain. It fits into Africa. And once it's determined and decided, create very simple, few policies to enable it. The third element is let's invite the best in the world to come play here. Mm. You know, it was so fascinating. When I look at the UK economy, where we do a lot of work, Section 12J, which has now become fairly well-worn and familiar in the South African psyche, it's a provision in the Income Tax Act that encourages you and me as private individuals 
to make investments into SMEs. Mm -hmm. And for that, we get a tax break to offset the risk because SMEs are riskier than corporates, obviously. And through that tax break, we can enjoy uh, certain benefits. Mm -hmm. What they did in the UK when they established those regulations, an enormous number of people started to, in pursuit of the tax break, invest in SMEs. And prior to Brexit, what it led to was the top young talent exiting the mainland of Europe and locating themselves in England because there was startup investment. So people who were educated on taxpayers' tickets out of France, Italy, Greece, Germany, you name it, who had ideas, drifted across the channel, established in the UK, and could get startup capital. And it spurred the UK into becoming startup central of the European Union when the UK was still part of it. Mm. If we created that opportunity here in South Africa, because there is such unmet demand, mm. Because what lies north of our borders is there for service because of the lifestyle, because of the weather, because of the dynamic between the developed economy and emerging economy. Our environment is vibrant, but it's never been allowed to be vibrant. And we've never invited people from all around the world to come play here. It's not that hard to do. And we, if I may say, it creates a very, no, sorry, very virtuous Sorry, mm. it creates a very virtuous cycle. Because this is how you create the vibrancy now in the SME economy. Mm. I have a business. You arrive in South Africa, or you emerge out of South Africa, and you start a business. And if we look at the mid-tier SMEs in South Africa, there are approximately 45,000 of them doing between 12, 13, 14 million up to about 300 million in annual revenues. There are about 850 businesses doing above 300 million a year in South Africa. So the corporate tier is far less competitive mm -hmm. than that mid-tier. In that mid-tier, when I compete with you and you compete with me, because we are entrepreneurs running our businesses, we're going to compete at a high level. The moment I start to beat you in the game of winning customers and servicing customers, out of necessity to survive a crisis, you have to innovate. And when you innovate and your innovation finds traction in the market, what it does is it attracts talent and it attracts funding. And as you attract more talent and more funding, it creates more competition. And as that competition heightens, the only survival response is innovation to attract, again, more talent and more funding. And that level of vibrancy, I believe, should be the central piece of South Africa's economic policy, because it invites everybody to come and play. Not just a few 
who might have the privilege of relationships or specific types of education, but it opens up the market and it invites everybody. And not only here in South Africa, but some of the best in the world, whoever they may be. I think there's definitely something to be said for, I think an element of when, when you see a higher unemployment, of course, the, it's a range of factors, but to me, there's also an element of what are the barriers to competition and how those already in those positions of power, be it in the private sector, the public sector, take your pick, how maybe the game has been stacked or rigged in a way to prevent that vibrancy and that competition that you talk about. I think that so many SMEs have managed to weather many storms in South Africa is testament to South Africans work ethic and creativity and imagination and just grit. But in many ways, the, the, the deck is stacked against them. And I'm hoping that through sort of the work we do and other organizations, we create just pressure in general that at some point just the, it's a bit of a, I don't know, a cast or a mold and it needs to be broken. It needs to be broken up so that it can breathe again. Um, I think we've seen just that important relationship between the economy and people's lives. When you shut down the economy, what happens in people's lives? It's almost like the, the life essence of the country is suppressed in a way. It is. And you know what? It's not only here in South Africa. It's mm. all over the world. Mm. So if you, look at, if you look at the rise of Trump in the United States, mm -hmm. and if you look at what led to Brexit in the, in, in the UK, when you look at those types of responses, those responses are answering or attempting to answer. No, those responses are capitalizing mm. on something that I've started to refer to as economic exclusion, mm -hmm. not income inequality, but economic exclusion. And economic exclusion is being felt substantially by middle classes, by specifically the SME sector, wherein which SMEs pay their taxes, they pay their taxes as they ought to pay their taxes. Mm -hmm. They certainly can't afford to get any fancy footwork done to reduce or minimize tax legally. Right. So they pay their taxes. Middle class employees pay their taxes. The deductions occur for payroll, they pay their taxes. And where does the tax money go? The tax money goes into a non-obvious relationship that exists between big politics and big corporate, where, for example, in order to generate economy, in order to generate revenues, in order to generate some activity, it might well be decided that we are going to establish an enormous rail link with a hydroelectric dam, etc., 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 in a certain part of the world or in a certain region within the country. The arguments always put forward. Well, that obviously requires the biggest of the big to bid and tender. Mm -hmm. And the biggest of the big bid and tender undertake a whole series of lobbying activities within the government. And what we started to see, which was annoying, certainly my clients in the US, was that big business and big government cozied up together in order to create economic opportunities. And the unspoken deal was when I conclude my position, my role, my career in government, I would naturally, obviously, be most suited to finding a seat on your board for two or $300,000 a year. And that was the quid pro quo. 
So that element that you referred to is tangible. And I think what led to Trump's rise was a single term that he used, which was drain the swamp. The clients that I work with in the US are all progressive individuals. I've known them for years. They would all vote classically Democrat. They voted for Republican when he coined that expression. And when I said, why? They said, because Pavlo, it's no longer fair. Happy to work hard, happy to stay committed to the cause of my business, happy to risk everything I have to make it happen. But how do we compete against cozy relationships? It's no longer fair. And we need to be cognizant of that because all of us who bemoan the fate of democracy are really bemoaning the same thing in response underlying to all of it, that impulse, it's no longer there. A lot of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A lot of buzz, I guess, lately, not even lately, more, more before lockdown has been around the quote unquote fourth industrial revolution and structural reform and those kinds of things. Do you think there's something to, for example, the fourth industrial revolution? Do you think it's just an empty concept? Do you see it tied in with SMEs or do you think it's just something that it's sort of covered in the news every now and then, but it's not going to mean much for people's lives? You know what? It's, it's really frustrating because it's a term that's been coined and it's a term that is so, 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 so poorly understood. Mm. So poorly understood. Because what does it actually mean? And I think it means a different thing for different people. The crisis that we are in at the moment as a result of COVID is, is not unusual from a technology response point of view. So let's, let's start from that position. If you look back in time, um, 6,000 BC, 10,000 BC, go back as far as there's evidence of recorded human history. Every time there's been a crisis of any sort, what preceded the crisis, what followed the crisis, was a technological response. Something to prevent the damage done by the crisis, and that something most often revolved around technology. So it could be the erection of a dam wall, it could be the creation of a road, it could be the establishment of a firebreak, it could be the creation of freezing, and refrigeration, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The response to a crisis is always technological with the view to try and improve the environment to prevent the recurrence of the impacts of a crisis. So if I look at what happened in South Africa, in many ways, COVID has been a gift for many businesses, not all, many, in the sense that they were forced to understand how to reshape or rather reset, rebuild their businesses in order to survive this environment. And most of what I've seen across South Africa, the US, the UK and the EU has been a massive uptick and adoption of technology. So that technology all in all is in effect an entree into the fourth industrial revolution. 
because the fourth industrial revolution talks to the process of digitization and underpinning digitization. You have automation on the one hand and you have mechanization on the other hand. And in the book, Reset, Rebuild, Reignite, I dedicate an entire chapter in terms of how you begin on a digitization process and where it can take you to reignite and thrive in a competitive economy. It is crucial that we get it right, Christo, because I'll give you a great example. In the United Kingdom, the powers that be measure the performance of their economy competitively by looking at the total revenue generated by business activity divided by the total number of people employed in generating that activity. And they view that as a productivity rate. The whole idea is to get the revenue generated to grow in terms of the people employed, because it would intimate, it would suggest that UK-related businesses are performing with an increased adoption of digital, and digital, if adopted correctly, improves profitability, productivity, scale, all those good things that everyone's constantly looking for in a business. The reason the UK is so profoundly concerned about this is because they recognize that if they don't lift their game from a productivity point of view, they could well find themselves having their SME market eroded, outcompeted, and outplayed by SMEs, whether it be from South Africa, the United States, Timbuktu, or Nepal. It makes no difference. That's the nature of what the fourth industrial revolution is bringing on to all of us. So the adoption of digitization in your business model, whether you be a cobbler making shoes or whether you be a forex trader, it makes no difference what industry you're in. There is a digitization strategy in each and every instance and building a business that favors the adoption of digitization is one very sound way to thrive in a crisis and certainly outplay and outcompete competitors. We should take it on, we must take it on. We need to lift our game in South Africa. I mean, in that vein, it's in a way, it, it was gratifying to see earlier in the year government release extra spectrum uh, for mobile providers to provide some other services, but the fact that they can remove that at any point and there's still going to be an auction at the end of this year. So maybe only the two big or three big players will get that spectrum again, setting the stage against the smaller competitors and, and more proper competition. You, you, you sort of, on the one hand, I want to get excited about what I see from the government, for example. And then on the other hand, I know what might be coming in the next few months. So we can get the fourth IR, but it's going to be hobbled because of the spectrum and because of ESCOM. So you want to go for it, but <laughs> like you say, there's this uncertainty. So, you know, how are people supposed to sort of prepare for the future and build? Um, it's so, so, so listen, no. you, you know, and, and this is a good segue to, to get on to a topic that's very, very close to my heart, which, which is the private business owner. Mm. When, when I look at the first ambit, the first part of this book, says in order to thrive in a crisis as an owner of a business, the starting point is to lead yourself, get your own head right, get your own head right. If you think about what the crisis did, and when I first shared this idea, people thought that I was being insane. 
what I did is I drew very heavily off the Kubler-Ross change curve. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was an American Swiss psychologist who dedicated her entire life to ease the pain of people grieving loss. So someone you love, someone you care for, someone who matters to you is at risk of losing their lives and ultimately does. The impact it has on you and what it means for your life going forward is what she studied in depth. She is the data version of Mother Teresa. And I talk a lot about what a shock does to a business because a shock suggests that everything you have invested your money in, everything you believe in as a business owner, everything that gives you meaning and purpose and direction, the thing, the vessel, the vehicle that you believe you have built to leave a small little stamp on the world. When all of that is threatened and the probability of it being taken away from you altogether exists. You move from denial into anger and frustration and fear, and you fall into a slump of depression. Straight after that, the only way out of that depression is to experiment. So how do I live my life without that person? What were the routines, the habits that I had with that person? What are the alternatives I could try? So she spoke about extensive experimentation to do things differently and see what works for you and see what doesn't work. And as you see what a life could look like without that person, then that starts to reshape and integrate into your new life forward. So when the shock came and we were shut down and it was extended beyond the third week into the fourth and into the fifth week, I saw SME business owners crashing into that well of depression. And the trick is that because you own your business and because it's everything you do, and because it's the business you build, it's all you know. The responses to get out of that depression were many and varied. A lot of them failed and a few worked. But once you're out of it, you then are setting yourself up for the next most important step. And that is focus only on what you have control over. So I hear you on the spectrum, and it leaves me with a question that has no value to me as a business owner. Why wasn't it done five years before? Why wasn't it done seven years before when it was first ideated and promulgated? Why have we not deregulated energy production in this country? Why are we stuck at one megawatt? Why not raise it to 10 megawatts? so we can establish our IPPs. That doesn't help me as a business owner. It doesn't help me move out of a crisis. The things that help me move out of a crisis are the things that I have immediate control over against which I can act, see the results, and follow the path of what works as opposed to what doesn't work. And I think that in this country, given the environment we're in and given where we are with our politics and our economy, the single most important message I would want to get out is to every private business owner out there, focus only on what you have control over and do not participate in the, in the recession. Do not participate in what could, might, ought to be. 
Focus only on what you can control and follow the direction of your customers and clients. Build your business from them back. Because what led to your success pre the COVID lockdown will be fundamentally different to what leads to your success now going forward over the next two to three years. I think that last point you mentioned is especially apt. We shouldn't make the mistake of falling into pre-lockdown patterns. Things are going to be radically different um, in ways that we probably can't imagine. I mean, you know, someone not that experienced in business, for example, I've always heard it said, um, you know, technology is, is increasing so quickly exponentially and things are going to happen in the next five years that would have taken 100 years before so to think now what's going to happen post the, the lockdown is, is in a way scary and intimidating, but it's also exciting to think about what could happen. Now, so let me tell you something very interesting. Because I had to look at this quite closely, given the fact that um, a lot of the content in the book is centered around action as opposed to theory. Mm-hmm. And as I started to look at this and reflect back on various crises that I've experienced in the businesses I've built, that my clients have certainly experienced in the businesses they obviously growing, What I noticed was this, crises don't change anything. If you think about the global credit crunch, right? 2008, where are we today with regulation in the banking sector? Because in many ways, regulation was put in place to try and prevent that occurrence or recurrence. And a lot would argue A lot of people more familiar with the environment, closer to the regulation, a lot of players who work in banking, play in banking, observe banking, they would argue we're well on our way to repeat the crisis. So a crisis doesn't change anything. And this is one of the fundamental points that I've made as a business owner. You do not have the luxury to sit there, take a crisis personally, bemoan your fate, lick your wounds, and feel sorry for yourself. Because there are two options. They're those captains of their ships. When the crisis arrives, it shapes up like a storm. The seas get rough. They look dangerous. The weather is out of control. It's mad. And the one captain turns around and says, let's go back into the harbor batten down the hatches, send our crew home, and wait for the storm to pass. The other captain says, get the crew on board, put on your life jackets, we are sailing into the storm, and we're going to test the strength of our hull, the power of our engines, the capability of our crew. I'm going to test my skills to harness the wind, so that when the storm eventually quells, we are way ahead of those that opted to remain in harbor. And what actually creates the change that you were referring to and that what we will witness is those businesses that very quickly grab this crisis with both hands and said, what changes do we need to make in the way we engage clients, our offers, the way we deliver and service, the way we build our businesses? because they reset the environment of trade in their sector and their industry. And those that opted to remain in the harbor, when they come back into the economy, 
They're saying, gosh, things have changed. You see what COVID did. It changed the economy forever. It changed the environment forever. No, it didn't. Your competitors who got ahead of the crisis changed it for you. Uh, with that call to action, I'm going to throw maybe the last talking point to you. So two areas of interest for me, especially, I mean, personally and in the work I do is research into the tourism and, and hospitality sector in the country. And we know it's one of our strengths, of course. Um, South Africa has so much going for it in that regard. And that's, I mean, just people's human capital and the way they, they treat each other and how they treat foreigners. The country has a good reputation, I think, in that regard. So, yeah, maybe I'm putting you on the spot here. Not that I know if you've done a lot of work in specifically the tourism and hospitality sectors, but just on that note of, you know, going out there and testing your engines and that sort of thing, um, now that tourism can open up again, how do you see that going? Do you see that as maybe one of the pillars of South Africa going forward? Uh, I'm hopeful, um, but I just wanted to get your perspective on that. Yeah, eventually. Mm. But the fact of the matter is that if people can't get you, you can't do international tourism. Right. It's really that simple. And you know what? I'm not saying that there's an answer to every crisis. Mm. Um, in fact, in, in Reset, Rebuild, Reignite, I introduce a new concept, a really, really canny way of evaluating where value lies in you, in yourself as a human being, but also in the business in its own right. And I call it the onion peeler because it's that simple. And what I can say is to people involved in the hospitality and tourism sector is that a lot of you have lost your businesses. That business will come back again. Mm because this too shall pass. But in the interim, take a really careful look at what value stacks you have built because you have relationships, you have reputation, you have an insight into how the sector operates. And those of you that have the resilience to start again will start again and will lap up the business that does arrive once it does. But until then, don't make investments in that space because it's simply, quite frankly, not worth it. Preserve the capital you have to fight another day as opposed to trying to create economy when there is no economy because effectively of an act of God. Yeah, I suppose discretion is the, the better part of valor. <laughs> as brave as we want to be, sometimes you need to just reassess and, and take a step back. Um, Pavlo, as always, a great learning experience for me, a great pleasure to get to talk to you, um, viewers and listeners. I hope you found value in this episode. Um, but Pavlo, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. I really do hope that if you do get a chance to re reset, rebuild, reignite, my contact details are on the book. Please let me know your thoughts. And if you find yourself in a tough spot, sometimes just getting an alternative perspective mm -hmm. can provide tremendous relief. It's something I would do gladly and with an open heart. So, Krista, thank you very much for having me. And to all your viewers and listeners, um, keep at it, keep in action, stay positive, because you have the option to. Thank you, Pavlo. Um, yeah, viewers and listeners, I'll link to Pavlo's book in the description below. Please, um, you know, if, you, if you're worried about going out um, to buy a physical copy of the book, you can buy it on on Kindle, um, as I'll be doing, I always prefer reading my, my books on Kindle. Um, 
Uh, also remember to follow Pavlo on Twitter. I'll link to his profile there and you can follow his work. Of course, listen, listen to him on 702 whenever he's on there and you'll gain more, more insights. Um, to those of you, thanks for your time, for watching another of our episodes. Please rem- remember to like the video. Please share and subscribe. And we will talk to you again in the next coming weeks. But for now, take care and stay safe out there. Bye-bye.